I'm Gene Demby. I'm Shireen Marisol Meraji, and this is Code Switch. From NPR. A disaster for feminism is how The Atlantic described this pandemic. The New York Times wrote that it's forcing families to, quote, confront the bruising reality of gender dynamics as the country is trapped at home. And of course, you already know if this is tough on women in the aggregate, it's going to be especially hard for women of color. Exactly. So on this episode, we're talking about race, feminism, and what those two things have to do with the COVID pandemic. And to get into all of this, we're bringing in our Code Switch teammate and senior correspondent, Karen Grigsby-Bates. Hey, KGB. Hey, KGB. Hi, Shireen. Hey, Jean. Okay, so we should stipulate here that uh, Karen is our Karen. She's not of the genus Karen, uh, because we're about to be talking about white feminism. So. <laughs> Thank you very much. I am not that Karen. <laughs> so, KGB, what you got for us? Well, a little teeny recent history lesson. Let's go back to January 21st, 2017. That was the first women's march on the National Mall, as y'all will remember. It was about a half million people in D.C., but there were marches in every state in the country and in several other countries. So... Altogether, somewhere between three and five million women came out. This march was supposed to be about advocating for women's rights, rights that many people felt were in danger of being erased by Donald Trump. We're talking access to abortions, equal pay for equal work, protections against assault and sexual harassment, pussy grabbing and whatnot. This was the pussy hat march. Yes, it was. Um, And those marches, those women's marches, were one of the largest, most visible show of support for mainstream feminism in a very long time, if ever. Exactly. That march got a lot of attention and a lot of props. Mm -hmm. But as you remember, and I've talked about this on the show, it also brought to light some big, long-standing divisions amongst feminists. I thought it was great to see so many people out. I just thought that there were more important issues prior to that point, like Black Lives Matter, that could have used that kind of support. That's Mickey Kendall. She's the author of the new book, Hood Feminism, Notes from the Women That a Movement Forgot. And her book is all about the ways in which feminists who are women of color, especially black feminists, have a wider agenda than the mainstream white feminist movement. I first spoke to Mickey back in February, right when her book was coming out. Then just a few weeks ago, I called her back up to talk about how those issues that are a centerpiece of what she calls hood feminism are coming into even sharper relief because of this coronavirus pandemic. All right, Karen, let's get into your interview with Mickey Kendall. You all kick things off by defining hood feminism. Hood feminism is lived feminism. It's the women who do the work, who are present in communities and making sure that their kids have schools. Medical care is somewhat accessible, even if it's not up to a standard we would otherwise want, that people have the basic needs met. It's great to want to be a CEO, to want to be president, but you should also probably make sure that your neighbors have enough food to eat and their homes are safe. I'm a black girl from the hood, South Side. I'm never going to be ashamed of being from the hood, and I don't understand when people say, oh, this is provocative, while we're supposed to pretend that where we came from shouldn't inform the feminism that we have as we move forward into the world. Does Hood feminism have a certain amount of class stratification to it, 
Could you be a bougie black woman and be a hood feminist? Oh, you absolutely could be a bougie black woman. I am a bougie black woman and a hood feminist. (laughs) You and Michelle Obama, right? (laughs) (laughs) Southside girls, you grow up. You know, one of the things, and this is a post-Jim Crow, but still very obvious thing in Chicago, but also in other cities, you don't, in neighborhoods of color, grow up with this wide gap between you and neighbors who have more money than you. You can literally be in Hyde Park and be side-by-side side with someone who's on food stamps on Section 8 and also next to the mansions up in North Kenwood. Mm-hmm. So it the hood is not necessarily, even though we tend to, to show it on TV as a very narrow slice of the projects, right? Like we think of good times. Mm-hmm. But in reality and in execution, the Evans would have lived door-to-door with the Cosbys in Chicago, right? You can see what used to be Robert Taylor, from Hyde Park. Quick explanatory comma. Robert Taylor, that was the famous housing project in Bronzeville on the south side of Chicago. When you were in where the Obamas, their house is, their house is viewing distance of Robert Taylor, even though those those have been torn down. So you might find yourselves rubbing elbows with people from that neighborhood, from Hyde Park, from Kentwood, on the bus. Yes. Depending on where you all were going or at the same, I don't know, library. If the same it's... library, same grocery store, walking down the street, and in the same public schools. Mm-hmm. Hood feminism is focused in part on the daily practicalities that doctrinaire feminists may not think fall under the feminist umbrella at all. You talk about things like safe, secure housing, decent, available food, uh, good schools. Why does including these things make sense to you? And why do you think there's so much resistance to having them included from people who don't have these worries? Because if you're going to complain that a movement is for all women, you need to be addressing the concerns of all women. And sure, if you are making mid six figures a year and you live in a very fancy suburb with a very expensive range of things, you may not have to worry about groceries or medical care, any of these things. But the women you're going to expect to come out and vote and support your candidates, they do. The women you're going to see running the, the schools, working in the hospitals, cleaning, all of that, the women in your world around you who have less than you, these are their concerns. So, KGB, just a reminder to our listeners, this was months ago that Mickey was talking about access to groceries, to healthcare, schools. All of these concerns have become even more critical as coronavirus has made its way into all of our lives. And I know Mickey had some thoughts about that when you checked back in with her. Oh, yeah, she definitely did. Feminism that didn't show up to make sure people had access to medical care, to grocery stores, to basic needs... Now, those same women who were being left behind are paying the price for not having with it the infrastructure. We are going to get into all of that after the break. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp, a truly affordable online counseling service. Fill out a questionnaire online and get matched with a licensed counselor best suited to your mental health needs. Whether it's depression, anxiety, or trauma, BetterHelp will help you overcome what stands in the way of your happiness. Learn more at BetterHelp.com and get 10% off your first month with promo code CODE. 
BetterHelp. Get help anytime, anywhere. We're in the middle of a global pandemic, but people are still looking for love. I think it might very well be the very best first date I've had. And finding love. That you're talking with a regularity that feels good to you. And making love work. Setting up an actual date night. Love in the age of coronavirus. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Shireen. Jean. Code Switch. And we're back with senior correspondent Karen Grigsby-Bates and our interview with Mickey Kendall about Mickey's new book, Hood Feminism. And Karen, you checked back in with Mickey a little more than a month after your first interview. I did. Uh, By that time, we were deep into this pandemic and things had changed just a little bit. The last time we talked, Mickey, you were in a studio. I was in a production room. We were doing it with all the bells and whistles. And things have changed since then, yes? Yes. We are now both, I assume, in our homes. I am using a handy-dandy mic that plugs into my computer and headphones and a backup recorder. I've learned a lot through this. (laughs) It's been um, frustrating but ultimately useful. I'm wondering, since the advent of this pandemic, whether that has changed any of your thinking about where Black women stand in this whole panoply of feminist self-assertion. So one of the things that I brought up last time and that I'm going to really stand firm on is that basic needs are being unmet by feminism for women of color Mm -hmm. and for poor white women too, right? Feminism isn't just failing low-income women of color. It's failing everyone that's not an upper middle class or above white woman at this point. And we're seeing that now play out with the virus because the death toll and the infection rate for essential workers is extremely high and for their family members and especially for people of color, especially black women and black families. You know, I had the virus and in our household, it was okay because I am a veteran who can access medical care. Um, We have health insurance, we had financial reserves, but statistically in my neighborhood and in my city, you know, Chicago is one of the cities where the South and West side, which are specifically black and brown neighborhoods have been hit really hard. Mm And what's happening here is that feminism that didn't show up to make sure people had access to medical care, to grocery stores, to basic needs, now those same women who were being left behind are paying the price for not having with it the infrastructure. It's very difficult to stay in your house if there's no grocery store in your neighborhood. How are you getting food? It's very difficult to stay in your house if your home is unsafe, if you have people outside your home you care for and there's no system to take care of them so there there's a lot of stay home stay alive stay safe kinds of things that really hinge on you having the money to be home even in terms of getting groceries delivered as far as i know still there's only one grocery delivery services that takes snap or ebt that's amazon fresh not only does not every area not have amazon fresh amazon fresh i think is booked out for two three weeks now for deliveries in the long term, again, if this is all ever over, um, do you think that white feminists especially will have learned anything from this experience in terms of how they deal with their sisters who are women of color? I think they will have had to learn 
not necessarily that they want to learn. I think as this continues, and especially as we start to see some scarcity in terms of who will do that labor caring for families, because I know that's going to be a real question, right? With the, the numbers that people will want to pay for that kind of work for house cleaning and things like that. And not just children, also, you know, right. elder care is just exploding. Right. And you got to have somebody there, and who are they going to have? Well, and especially when you consider that we've also got this other squeeze of, you know, um, the rumored immigration shutdowns, all of these things. Yes. Um, America does not, is no longer a land of opportunity and freedom. Well, maybe we don't come here. Maybe also we start to leave here if we can. We take these skills, we take this willingness to be caretakers, whatever, somewhere else, right? We sort of ignore the fact that the invisible underpinning of the American paved streets of gold narrative is all of the people who build those streets and maintain those streets and clean those streets. If those people leave, this giant booming economy that we're always talking about doesn't exist. Who's, who's bringing in food from fields? Who's taking care of elders? Who's taking care of street cleaning? All of these things, right? And sure, poor people may not completely be able to abscond from the quote unquote American dream, but those numbers drop and you immediately see a problem. Those numbers don't have to drop that far. We were seeing signs of this in New York and the Bay Area before the pandemic as it got too expensive to live there and people moved elsewhere in the States. Right, because they couldn't do a two-hour commute. Right. And you can't run your shining city on the hill without teachers, nurses, garbage collectors, you know, all of these women and, and men who make a city function, who make a place inhabitable. Right. Streets and sanitation is maybe not a job we always respect, but streets and sanitation is why we haven't had other plagues. Yeah. And if you don't have it, if there's a strike or if there's some sort of disruption where you don't have it, all of a sudden you realize how absolutely critical it is. Right. But people have short memories. And I, that's why I think that they'll sort of be forced only because there's multiple waves. Right. We've seen in the past. Um, after 1918, the first wave of the flu in 1918, those next two waves, right? We're seeing already almost a complete mimicry of that. Well, we want to go outside. We want to get our hair cut. We want to write to your labor, right? These protests that we're seeing, which are already artificially constructed, are also not about wanting to go back to work. They're about people wanting the right to someone else to do the work that they miss them doing for them, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I do wonder if that is not an available resource immediately, if, if you have to live with the consequences of this through multiple shutdowns, if people will retain the message a little longer, if they will remember, because it's been more than inconvenient and it's been downright a travesty, that, oh, hey, maybe what I don't want to do is mistreat the people who make my life possible. And we have another public health crisis coming that feminism is going to have to start talking about, too, because our mechanisms for taking care of people in unsafe or unstable homes are basically schools and shelters, right? Yep. They were always underfunded, always poorly supported. Well, now that they're closed because they're not safe because of a virus, our next public health crisis we can see already is domestic violence and sexual assault numbers. Which is exactly what I was going to ask you next about the whole issue of, you know, if, if you have to shelter in place, but the place in which you have to shelter is not a safe place, should that not be 
a priority for feminists to be thinking about? Absolutely. What we should be seeing, and not just during the pandemic, but in general, is support for housing. Because one of the reasons that these other social safety nets matter, housing, food, all of these things, it's easier to leave if you're not worried about the material function of how you're going to, to afford to live. How do you afford to leave, right? Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I talk about in Hood Feminism is that when I left my ex, I had access to public housing, a medical card, and food stamps. This is not a expensive, I've certainly paid more in taxes than I ever got. This is not an expensive safety net, despite what you may hear later. This is a safety net that meant that when I said, oh, this situation is unsafe and unstable and I will be harmed, my child can be harmed, let me leave him, I was able to do it. I didn't have to go at that point to a shelter because I could go into an apartment. I I could get coverage for the basic needs. You know, when we talk about social safety nets, like we think of them as not being feminist issues because they don't just affect women. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that women, especially single mothers, are more likely to be poor. Mm -hmm. And so when we are now looking at this, where people who have lost their jobs or or, or, or are in homes where a partner has lost their job, we are now turning up the intensity on stressors, right? And situations that may not have been unsafe when both people were going out to work, when both people were, you know, in emotionally stable places, not under as much stress, are now becoming more unsafe and more uncomfortable. So we need a mechanism that at the end of this, we no longer expect people who are leaving unstable housing to go into shared resident facilities. We don't need people to ever be in a shelter, to be honest with you. We could have always provided apartments and other public housing projects that were safe, sane, and stable, as long as they were actually cared for by the government agencies getting money to care for them. It sounds so reasonable, you know, when you're when you're saying these things, when you're outlining these things, they don't sound prohibitively expensive. The logistics don't sound insurmountable. Why has that not happened? Because one of the first places politicians like to turn is often to blame the poor for being poor, to blame them for needing anything. And we tend, and I'm calling out feminism in this, to say, well, if you try hard enough, right, we get this weird bootstrap logic going, where you can grab your leg and pull yourself up. And I don't know if anyone's ever pulled on a bootstrap, but you know what you can lift with a bootstrap? Your foot. Maybe. Maybe, right. So if that is where you are, if that is your situation, and we are saying, well, you should be able to do it by yourself. Well, none of the people saying that did it by themselves. If you inherited money, if you were lucky enough to be born with better, more robust social safety nets were still being funded, right? We tend to say things like entitlement programs, and we've made it a pejorative, but entitlement literally just means you've paid into it and you have every right to expect it to be there for you. Mm -hmm. So what we're saying now is that you don't have a right person who pays taxes to expect your taxes to pay for things to take care of you and people like you. Your taxes are supposed to go to a federal stockpile you can't access, to defense spending for wars that don't need to happen, to golf trips over and over and over again. How dare you expect that the money you pay out benefit you is the narrative that we sort of subscribe to. It's ridiculous. It's obscene. 
it's a heist. It's a long-term con game disguised as politics. But that's what we've been told is what we should think. And unfortunately, feminism is not challenging enough of it. I would like to see mainstream feminism show up for every election, not just the presidential elections, not just one candidate, but those down ticket races, right? So your city councilmen, your aldermen, your mayors, your governors, any of that, state senators, whatever. And I would like the criteria to be more than abortion. I would like the criteria to be about social safety nets, about poverty, about housing and food and all of these things. I would absolutely love to see feminism speaking up and saying we need to take care of everyone who is at the bottom of the financial ladder. Again, that was Mickey Kendall, author of the new book, Hood Feminism, in conversation with our very own Karen Grigsby Bates. And that's our show. But before we go, Karen, I know you have a song giving us life this week. I do. (laughs) Um, In listening back to this interview, it really was very apparent to me that a lot of what women of color who consider themselves feminists want from the mainstream movement is to be visible, to be heard, and to be respected for their lived experience. And so I think when you consider all of that, there's really only one song that makes sense for us to choose, right? So we'll let the queen do her thing. If there were Karens out there who aren't me, who don't know who that was, <laughs> that was Miss Aretha Franklin. Mm-hmm. Karens, y'all have been schooled. And by the way, you should know all these names, too, that, that Jean's about to read. <laughs> yes, this episode was produced by Jess Kung, who made it sound good, and edited by Leah Danella, who made it make sense. Shout out to the rest of the Code Switch fam, Natalie Escobar, Kumar Devarajan, L.A. Johnson and Steve Drummond. Our interns are Diane Lugo and Isabella Rosario. I'm Jean Demby. I'm Shireen Marisol Meraji. And I'm Karen Grigsby-Bates. See ya. Be easy, yo. Peace. The biggest story in the world is a science story. And keeping up with all the latest coronavirus research, it's a lot. So on Shortwave, we translate the science you need to know into short daily episodes. Listen and subscribe to Shortwave from NPR.